Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. The book of James is rich in learning to know God's heart for his people and how to walk in obedience and faithfulness. Please continue listening for today's message. This morning's reading is from the book of James, chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. Warning against worldliness. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he would exalt you. God bless the reading of his word. That better? Yes. Fantastic. Just to prove that I am old, as you've mentioned, Bruce, and I didn't switch it on completely. But um, it's nice to have friends, eh? Um, that speak so highly of you in public. But it is good to see you this morning. And I mean that because about six weeks ago, I went off to the Goodwood licensing office to renew my driver's license card. And all went well until the eye test. (laughs) Because I was determined to continue to have a driving license without an endorsement that I've got to wear glasses all the time, because my glasses are mainly mainly for reading. But um, very kind lady, and she said, um, uh, Mr. Milligan, uh, will you respond to um, what you see in front of you? So I said to her, have you switched it on yet? So she was so polite. By the way, that's a great place to go to. They're very kind to old people. So she did it again. I was given a second go. And guess what? It was a blank screen. So again, she was very kind to me as she was to a few other old people who arrived on the same day. And she said, well, just across at N1 City, there are optometrists who do tests on your eyes. And if you can come back with a certificate to say that you can see, then we'll give you your card. So you want the happy ending. I got it. Without the endorsement. But there's more. 
because two weeks later, the frame of my glasses broken beyond repair, and off I went to a spectacle warehouse there near Kenilworth Centre for a comprehensive procedure and test uh, for some new specs. But in both cases, they asked me the awkward question. Mr. Milligan, have you always had two different eyes? <laughs> you know, one's blue and one's brown, you know that? That's not, you can relax. <laughs> but one is far-sighted and one is short-sighted. I've had that my whole life. So I have one thick lens and one thin lens, but here's the good news, but together I can see all things well, and you guys look amazing for the first time. <laughs> So the reason why I'm telling you that my two eyes often remind me of something special. My two different eyes remind me of a great verse in our Bible, Psalm 119, verse 105, which says, your lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet, which is near, and a light to my path, which is far. And that's what we get to benefit from today because we're into God's word which is a lamp to your feet, both near and a light to your path far as you walk out through life. I love it. It's the best. And so we get into the next verses of James 4, um, and of course they're no exception because it's God's word, and we're into this, uh, this section of our series in James, uh, the big theme being wisdom to live God's way. Wisdom to live God's way, there it is. That's what we're into, and we continue to dig into the fourth chapter uh, of James's letter, which addresses the issue of double-mindedness, that tension uh, between worldliness and humility, a tension which, which results in conflict. If you were here last week, you would have heard Ian preaching on that, and uh, it speaks about quarrels and fights. There was an example. And all this raises some questions some questions that we have in our minds. Well, how do we deal with this conflict? How do we decide on our response? How do we move from what causes conflict to what cures this conflict? And we read from verse one to verse six, which Ian dealt with last week, but the big focus is there. You saw it, you heard it. If you weren't here, have a listen to last week's talk so you can see the flow of this what conflict looks like, what causes it, that realistically it's a part of everyday life. Conflict is part of everyday life. And it comes in all sorts of contexts, in our home, at work, in relationships, in the church, and it's spoken or it's unspoken. Why? Because we live in an imperfect world. We are an imperfect community in our humanness. And yes, it can leave us with hurt and with wounds and with scars and with guilt, but also with pride. Pride. We're proud of what we know. We're proud of what we possess. We are proud of what we have achieved. We are proud of winning an argument, of looking good. Yet this is not where God wants to leave us. Hence the words of verse six, which we read, where James quotes Proverbs 3, verse 34, and he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love that second part, don't you? But he gives grace to the humble. This is the hope 
that we have. Friends, will you agree that if God gives the grace for us to meet his desire for our daily living, then surely we must become humble if we expect to receive that and to enjoy his wonderful grace. And because your answer is yes, that's what I want, let's now dig into how James unpacks what that will look like. What are the steps? What are the steps towards the evidences of true humility? That's today's topic, evidences of true humility. I'm a pastor, I have a a career in HR and retail. I simply love people. You guys are amazing, you're fascinating. Uh, Some of us, some of you give us a hard time, other of you are easy going. There's lots about being human. And I love that, I love reading about people. And it's been a year of, of reading through different biographies of a range of people. I think back, I read the story of the CEO of, of, of Disney, it's an amazing story. The guy who founded Nike, um, the story of Johnny Clegg. Um, and at the moment I'm reading a great story um, about a guy called Dr. Emmanuel Taban. He's a Sudanese guy. During those, those years of conflict and civil war, he walked and he caught buses and he survived got down to South Africa, studied medicine today. He's a successful pulmonologist. Lovely story. Uh, Read the story of Philip Yancey. He's just written a great book, Where the Light Fell. We read about people. But today I want to tell you about this book here. Um, Who of you knows Sia Colisi? Amazing man. If you're not a rugby follower, he's the captain of the Springbok rugby team. Um, and he has written a book called Rise, which is the English translation of his mother's name, by the way. Um, it's, a, it's full of great stories. And besides being the captain of the Springboks, he talks about his Christian faith. That's the highlight uh, throughout the book. And it ends a strong ending of, of, of his priorities in life. It talks about his family and how he grew up in terrible circumstances. He was given a scholarship to go to, to the best school in the country, um, which is... Thank you, Gray School. (laughs) Many great people have gone to that school, in case you missed the little point I was making. Um, But it tells tells a story of that, of course, stories about rugby. And one story is about about when when Rusty Erasmus became coach of the Springboks, and they had just been thumped uh, by Ireland, and they were ranked a lowly seventh in the world rankings. That resulted in conflict. You can imagine it. Management and players saying, well, that's the one who's playing badly, that's their fault, that's one there. Uh, the, the fans weren't, they were uh, being critical um, and uh, they had their own agendas uh, and the team was just not performing well. And so the coach, coach came up with a very simple mantra which was the following, he said, let the main thing stay the main thing. You might have heard that before. And to remind everybody in the team and the management that their role was to play good rugby and to win matches. To play good rugby and to win matches. And only after they had successfully achieved the primary objective could they start thinking about other things. They would do great things. They would inspire and unite the nation. They would become great brand ambassadors. They would build a social profile. But it was important that they kept the main thing, the main thing. And it worked because they won 
the World Cup. There it was, celebrating. Eben and Sia celebrating 2019 winning the World Cup. So, they kept the main thing, the main thing. Today we're gonna do just that. Because today we're looking at James 4 from verse seven to verse 10, and there's something that God wants us to hear through these verses in James's little book. And James's main concern, what he wants the main thing to be the main thing is that each of us humbly submit to God's Lordship over every area of our lives. Their whole string of commands, they will look at them, they're all, they're all matter, but the main concern is that each of us humbly submits to God's Lordship over every area of our lives. You got that? Write that down, that's the big take home. Uh, message from this text today. Because these, first, these, these, these four verses make it very clear that the remedy to our pride, to our worldliness, uh, to our conflict is to, to submit to God, to humble ourselves before Him. Did you notice the two key words, the two bookends to our passage? There they are in verse seven and verse 10, to submit yourself and then to humble yourself. Those of you who are interested in, in the Greek of that, they both come, they both have the same uh, root and original uh, meaning, and so there's a strong connection between those two English translations. So time to take a closer look at essentially three dimensions, uh, three instructions, three steps towards evidences of true humility in your life and mine. Number one, Submission and resistance. Submission and resistance, there it is. In his commentary on this passage, Douglas Moo, we've been consulting, you might have recognized his name as we've been speaking through the book of, of James. He makes this statement, listen to this. It says, he said this, to submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. That's good, eh? To submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in, in all things. That's the benchmark. That's what submission calls for, fully yielding to God, recognizing his just and rightful role over our lives. And it's not just an optional extra. It's not an optional exit to our Christian lives, it's what it means to fully relate and rely and follow and trust God. And when Jesus addressed those who wanted to be his disciples, do you remember what he said to them? What did he say that they must do? Well, Luke 9 verse 23 records it. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so yes, we are called to submit, to submit our desires, our attitudes, our actions. Yes, straightforward to read and to understand, but very hard to do. We know we should, we want to, but we get stuck, yeah? And this is why James helps us. James moves immediately to why we get stuck. He moves to the devil's influence in our lives, and that we are to resist him, to take our stand against him, to 
pray for deliverance from his, his evil schemes. That's, that's why Jesus taught that to his disciples. They said, how should we pray? And he tells them, and he says, as he goes through, to deliver us from the evil one. And we know how real this is. I came across a, a quote which sums it up. What do you think about this? It says this, before we commit a sin, Satan minimizes it. After we commit a sin, Satan makes it look too big to be forgiven. He makes the sin you're tempted seem small and insignificant. But after you commit the sin, he makes you feel like it is unforgivable. That's the conflict, that's the battle. Yes, we can relate to that. Yes, it's our real experience and that's why the devil is not to be ignored or trivialized. But let us not cower in fear nor yield to his temptations. Rather to hold on to this promise from God's word which we've got before us today and James is clear in verse seven, he says, resist the devil. That means saying, no, no. It's a conscious, assertive, determined, repeated response, no to the devil, and then what is the promise, the completion of the sentence? He will, he will flee. And here it comes, there's more, because, and the highest form of our resistance to the devil is to do what? To submit to God. Isn't that beautiful? To submit to God, to all, everything, completely, to our true King, to His promises, to His protection, to His will, to His ways. Friends, can we hear this again? Because we do battle with sin in our lives, it's real, it's there. How do we respond? For us to resist the devil, to steer clear of temptation, to steer clear of aggression, of intimidation, of conflict, is to, is to turn towards, towards God, to draw near to Him. Another story from Sia Khaleesi's book, I think helps us. There's a picture of me on the screen. <laughs> when I was younger. And of course that's, Picture is of two men, we know them, Sia and Ibn Etzebeth. Um, and the story uh, Sia tells uh, in his book goes back to the 2015 World Cup final, which was a disaster. We lost to Japan in the first round, we lost to New Zealand in the semi final. And I'll quote the story. He says that a few of the boys went to Twickenham to watch. Uh, the final between Australia and New Zealand, but Eben and I had tickets to watch Liverpool play Chelsea. <laughs> Who supports Liverpool? Yeah. Who supports Chelsea? Okay, a few of you, okay. We've got our teams. <laughs> Wait and see. Sia said, I'd been a Liverpool fan since I was a kid. This was the first time I'd ever seen them play and I couldn't wait. The only snag was that the seats we had were amongst the Chelsea fans. <laughs> and we knew enough to be aware that soccer crowds in England weren't like rugby crowds. In rugby stadiums, opposing fans mingle happily, mingle happily and there's never any hint of trouble. English football was different. 
Whatever you do, we are told, don't celebrate if Liverpool score. <laughs> you know where this is going. <laughs> you don't have to leap around and feign delight if Chelsea do, but don't celebrate a goal against the home team. The fans don't mind neutrals, but they do mind opponents. <laughs> Chelsea went up 1-0 early on. But just before halftime, Philippe Contenho equalized for Liverpool. Instinctively, I leapt up and started screaming, just like I did every time they scored when I was watching on TV at home in Cape Town. Hundreds of heads whipped around to glare at me. <laughs> Chelsea fans, angry, furious, hurling abuse at me. Yerbin stood up. <laughs> alongside me, six foot eight of him and folded his arms <laughs> like Alan Gibbon and so his biceps looked even bigger than they are normally. The abuse faded away <laughs> into mutterings as the fans gradually sat down again. We followed suit. <laughs> You get it? In the face of potential or real conflict or aggression, Sear was able to turn to Eben to receive support and protection that he needed. Friends, can we hear it again? For us to resist the devil, to steer clear of temptation, of aggression, of intimidation, of conflict, is to turn towards God to draw near to him. You got it? But it makes it so beautiful, doesn't it? And James uh, could give us no greater encouragement to do so than this. He says, when we draw near to God, verse eight, he draws near to us. And when James tells us to draw near, we may assume it's like me moving towards uh, this table but that's not the intent of this phrase. The meaning is more of an extreme closeness in relationship. Spending time with God, drawing on His truth, His promises, His power every day. And this is what God wants for us. He wants us to be close to Him. He wants us to move towards Him. He wants us to not stop drawing near to Him. And when we do, he promises he will draw near to us. Yo, that's a Selah moment for us. That before we carry on, let that just sink down into this is our God. As we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Let's say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So when we lived in Johannesburg some years ago, we often traveled along one of the main arterials. If you know Joburg, there's the Bayers Nordia Drive that goes out to the northwest. Um, and there was a well-positioned church billboard uh, with these words on it. If you feel far from God, guess who moved? If you feel far from God, guess who moved? It makes you think, doesn't it? 
And it reminds us of the story of the prodigal son because like the father of the prodigal son, God stands always there, always ready to welcome back his children who turn from, who turn from their sinful ways. Ready to restore the personal close relationship because the prodigal son did not find restored relationship with his father while he remained back there, while he remained in the pigsty, he needed to turn his back on his sin. Because turning to God must involve turning from sin. There it is in verse eight. We turn from sin. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so that's the second step. We look firstly at submission and resistance, now secondly, resentment, resent, repentance uh, and, and grief. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And straight away, we must notice that repentance involves both hands and, and heart. Both actions and attitude, both behavior and mindset. Why is this important? Because repentance of attitude without changes in conduct is no repentance at all. Nor can we expect to change our behavior without seriously changing the thoughts and the attitudes that lie behind it. Can I say it again? Repentance must involve both our hands and our heart, our external behavior by washing our hands, our internal attitude by purifying our hearts. It's ongoing, it's day by day, it's essential to our growth and our maturity in Christ. Now, here comes the pivotal question. What does turning from sin look like? The answer's there in the next verse. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Whew, strong words. But friends, please note that James is not saying that there's no place for joy and laughter in the Christian life. We've laughed this morning. I wouldn't survive without a sense of humor and enjoying that. And there are plenty of references throughout Scripture to back that, that speak about rejoicing. But rather in the context, James is reinforcing the need to take sin seriously. It's deserving of the very wrath of God. And James wants us to see sin for what it is, a serious breach in our relationship with the loving Heavenly Father. A loving Heavenly Father who gave His only Son to take our place and to die for our sins. James wants us to grasp and to grieve the reality of our sin, to bring it before God in repentance and humility, and then to experience the, the cleansing power of Jesus through his sacrificial death on the cross. The table is set before us, they're here today, to help us to remember what he did for us. And it's only as we recognize who we are, we are sinners because we are human and we grieve over that truth that we freshly discover and appreciate what it means for God to draw near to us. What it means for God to restore us, to lift us up and to pour out his grace. 
And that leads us to the final instruction in this passage, and it takes us back to where we started, uh, and there it comes in verse 10. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Mm. Submission and resistance, repentance and grief. Thirdly, humility and exaltation. It takes us back to those bookends of verse seven and verse 10, but more than that, it brings us back to the quotation of Proverbs three and verse 34. That he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is such a wonderful truth, isn't it? If God gives grace to the humble, to those who submit to him, then humbling ourselves before God is obviously the way to experience that grace. That's what we're hearing from God's word this morning. Because God gives grace to the humble, to those who submit to him. Then surely we want to humble ourselves before him and to experience that grace. In the words of Jesus, I look back to Luke 18 where it records the parable of the Pharisee who was like wanting to make a name for himself and drawing attention to himself and you had the tax collector just praying quietly. What did Jesus do? Well, he pronounced the right postured praying tax collector justified. And then he said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to Sam Aubrey, who says it so well. God humbles us not to keep us down, but to lift us up. It is the contrite in heart that God esteems, Isaiah 66 verse two, and the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of heaven, Matthew five verse three. Complacent laughter gives way to mourning and mourning now gives way to the joy of our salvation. There should be no people more sad and yet more happy than Christians. The lower we are, the more lifted we are. It is the great paradox of the Christian life that we weep over our sin while singing in astounded joy of our salvation. Great paradox of our Christian life. We weep over our sin, and we must, while singing in astounded joy of our salvation, which we love. And that's what we're gonna do right now. I wanna call the band up, but we wanna do that by focusing on Jesus. Just the one to look to. And Paul speaks about that. Philippians 2, it's, it talks about us imitating Christ's humility. So of course you might be saying, well, what does it look like? What does being humble look like? Well, let's follow Christ because we are becoming more like him. And it speaks here, and especially in terms of our relationships. Verse five of Philippians 2 says this, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What did God do? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you wanna just bow your heads? Because today we really wanted to get the main thing, the main thing. Let's get that back in its right place. And we're talking about humble submission to God's Lordship in our lives. And that starts in our hearts, but reaches to every part of, of what we do. It involves hand and heart repentance, perseverance in the face of temptation, and confidence that God will indeed reward those who draw near to Him. Friends, we're not rushing this morning. There'll be a scripture up on the screen which will help you because God wants the best for you. And so now by His Spirit, He's He's just prompting, He's telling you, He's convicting you of something in your life that doesn't need to be there, it mustn't be there. But you can come in and you can examine your heart and you can say, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous or, or wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting, the best way. I'll give you a few moments just to do that. humble our souls before the Lord. He will exalt us. How does He do that? 1 John 1 verse 9 says it. It says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. That's exaltation. That's becoming like Jesus. And that's what we celebrate. We say thank you this morning. So can I invite you to the tables in front, to the back. It's a personal time. Come and take the bread, take the cup, take it back with you. And we'll eat and we'll drink as we just spend this time with God, as He works and speaks into our lives, as we respond by saying thank you. Come and help yourselves, please.